0: Although, my voice does carry. Oh,
1: it does. It does. Or as I have, uh, what I put into the notice, as much as interesting as each camp was, your narrative between the, ver- between the locations with all your stories were just as good.
0: Okay, well, thank you for that.
1: So can I quickly do introductions? Between six and ten years old, we lived in, Ma- in Maryland, just outside of Washington. We spent a lot of time going to Civil War battlefields. So I'm kind of excited about this topic. Okay. And I'll turn it over to you so I won't bore them further.
0: All right, so it's my job to bore them further. (laughs) So let me ask you a question. How many of you have been out to the the Lake County and actually did the Civil War walking tour? I recognize some of you. Great. Okay. (coughs) What I'm going to do is I'm going to be talking a little bit about the history of that, a little bit about the history of the uh, uh, program, and also then talk about the, the food of the Civil War and the soldiers. Give you a greater education on what you should be looking for when you're going into the camps and how to, what the goal was of the whole process with the Civil War camp tours. It actually started in Southern California about uh, 30-odd years ago. They had an event called Accolades and they were looking for something different. and came up with the idea of the camp tour combined with the cooking tour because how the soldiers related to food was very important in the Civil War. Uh, There's an excellent new book, not that new, called A Taste for War by uh, Davis. I can't remember his first name, uh, which he covers some of the, and, and was a source of great inspiration for me, but he covers a lot of uh, the rations, the uh, uh, way that they were prepared, what was out available, and we're going to go through a lot of that today. I've brought a lot of things with me to play kind of show and tell on the things that they would have either been issued or would have been uh, pillaged, foraged is the more polite term, <laughs> and uh, what they would have been able to acquire from the sutlers. So we're going to cover that. So, with the history of the cooking tour, the goal was to be able to go from camp to camp to camp, depending on the camp setting. Each individual organization did their own setting, created their own parameters as to where they were, what was going on, and then how the food related into that. And that was the whole goal of that, was to create an interaction with the public, so that the public could understand and learn a little bit about that. And By the way, at any time you want to interrupt for a question, just pop your hand out and fire away. Where is this cooking tour? This was done, the, like I said, the first one was done at, at the Accolades, and that was in the Embarcadero Park in uh, in, Los An- in uh, San Diego, California. The one we did was at the Wakanda Civil War event, which was unfortunately canceled this year.
1: Oh, wow. What year was that with the Accolades?
0: The accolades was in, uh, I think it's still going on, uh, about 1992 to 94, and it was an interesting event because it was a timeline and it was sponsored by the United States Navy, since it's right there in the Embarcadero, right across from Coronado Island, and that what they did was they'd have the Navy band out there and you'd have groups from different time periods of American history doing things. And that made the cooking tour very interesting because the cooking tour was not just Civil War. Uh, For example, they had uh, Patton's Third Army Headquarters mess, which did a beef stroganoff strictly with sea rats. (laughs) What? Sea rations. Oh, sea rations. rations. (laughs) Can you hear sea rats? (laughs) Sorry, army jargon there. <laughs> they probably would have taken. Scary. They probably would have taken first places but one of the judges walked in and said, "How about a cup of coffee?" This is a field army headquarters mess coffee is 24/7. As anybody who's actually been in the military would know. And that cost them first place, they went from first to third like that. But it was still an impressive thing to do. Okay, so let's get into the food of the American Civil War. Now one of the big challenges of the, the period is transportation, storage, preservation. So Transportation, it's 1860s. They were able to just put everything onto the superhighway and move it down where the superhighways were. And the superhighways were called, what's that? The superhighways were called rivers. So anything you wanted to move any distance, the best and most efficient way of doing it was by steamboat. Okay, so they would move things down the river. If you look at the map of the Civil War and you look at where battles were fought, aside from the campaigns that were taking place in the East, which by the way, the Peninsula Campaign, the James Rivers Campaign, all of the battles that took place around the ports to blockade the Confederacy, and then the Inland Campaign, the Mississippi River, Vicksburg, uh, New Orleans, going up into Fort Henry and Fort Donelson on the Tennessee River going up into Chattanooga. So all of your battles Shiloh, Pittsburgh Landing is right there on the Tennessee River. So all of your battles concentrate upon that superhighway because cutting that is essential to the transportation also that means it's a supply line for the north. The next thing you have are railroads. So railroad hubs become really important, especially someplace like Chattanooga. Chattanooga is vitally important because it's a river port and a railway hub. A place like Chicago is real important. It's a port and a convergence of lots of railroads. St. Louis, same way. New Orleans. So these are very important elements of the transportation network. So from there, you have your rivers. From your rivers, you go to the rail. From rail, now you're going to wagons. Okay? Now, mentally, you can start to think about distance, time. And when we get into distance and time, that really impacts the second element of this, which is preservation. Okay, what can I move over that kind of distance and still have it functional as food. And that was really the challenge that the armies, both armies faced. So when you look at the rations that were given to the soldier, the soldier is supposed to get one pound of fresh beef, and the easiest way to move beef was fresh herds. One pound of fresh beef, or three quarter pound of salt pork or salt beef. Now, a way that they would do that is they would take a hog's head, which is not the head of a hog, it's a barrel designed to hold a whole hog, including the head. So, what they would do is they would have provisioners pack the beef or pork in brine, salt water, a heavy brine mixture that would permeate the meat, to keep it from festering and growing all kinds of nastiness. Now, typically when they were doing hogs, the provisioner was allowed to take off the hams because they, val- they were the most valuable part of the hog. And then they would pack the rest and send that down. And that's how they would get beef. The other thing that they would love is bacon. Bacon was a staple for both armies, And the way they would do bacon is they would salt cure it. So if anybody's in the mood for some bacon, I just made a mess of your sign. No problem. This is what it would look like. This is actual salt cured bacon. Done in the standard methodology of the period. It is designed... That it actually is preserved. Now, one of the things that the soldiers didn't get issued was salt. They didn't need it. Trust me, this is as much salt as you get in the box of Mortons. Wow. So you can actually see.
1: How old is that one?
0: Uh, how old is that? That's about a year old.
1: Oh, okay. French.
0: Okay, so that is <laughs> yeah. fairly well preserved. Now, bacon is an essential staple for the soldiers. The way you would prepare this is you would first take out your boiler. And if you had time, uh, you literally could actually cut a piece off and, and as the old saying goes, chew the fat. That's where it comes from. It comes from taking off the fat of the bacon and chawing on it. Uh, They would take that and cut that, put it in a boiler, and they would boil it not to cook it, that's to remove the salt because it's that salted. After you do that you would then take it into your frying pan or whatever you're going to fry it with or just empty the water out and cook it in there. Fry it get the grease out because the grease is going to be essential for other things. That becomes part of your cooking tour. So that is one of the things they would do. The first thing, so that's an essential. Now, the other thing they would be issued is bread. They were a pl- issued a pound of bread per day in the northern army. That typically was called hardtack. One, one question. When you mentioned uh, a pound of beef earlier, were you talking about per every three days, was it, or every day? Theoretically, that was supposed to be a daily ration, was a pound of beef and a pound of bread. Okay, okay, Never worked out that way, as you can well imagine. And a pound of beef or a pound of pork, uh, if you got a pound of meat out of that, you did really well. You may wind up with two, you know, you get a pound of beef and it's three-quarters pound bone uh, just because of the way they butchered it. There weren't professionals out there in the field, you know. Most, you know you guys weren't used to cutting steaks and cutting ribs, and they just hacked at it and issued it out. So what you got was what you got. So theoretically, yes, you got a pound of beef and you've got a pound of bread, that was your daily ration. In the Northern Army, if you were in the field, that pound of bread was hardtack. Now hardtack is a really complicated mixture of salt, a little bit of salt, flour, and water. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it, you know, you can use it as paste. So they would make that. 30 years of practicing at this, I've learned something about hardtack. <laughs> the problem with, with hardtack wasn't that they baked it enough or, or they baked it too much. The problem was they didn't bake it enough. If you bake it till it's a real dark golden brown, it then becomes very, very crispy and will break apart, and will crack. It's when you just get it to where it's just starting to brown, that it takes on the features of, well, what do you do with flour and water? You make paste, Mm -hmm. and the paste hardens, and it becomes rock hard, and that's exactly what they got. So that's why the uh, hardtack always got the the nickname of uh, tooth dollars, Worm castles. So what the soldiers would do is they would issue their one other thing that they would get an issue, at least on the federal side, was their favorite element, and that is coffee. So Billings, in his book, writes of Hardtack and Coffee. Now, coffee was originally issued green. They would issue green coffee beans. And the soldiers would have to then roast the coffee, grind the coffee, and then make the coffee. During about the middle of the war, they thought that was a little inefficient, that they could roast it, and issued roasted beans. So for most of the war, this is what was issued. And finally, towards the end of the war, they realized It's just easy to roast it, grind it, and we issued ground coffee. And they started doing that. Something else the soldiers were issued was sugar. Now, you don't have a lot of functional use for sugar in the field, so typically what the soldiers would do if they were issued ground coffee or if they ground their coffee, they would just automatically mix the sugar and coffee together. And they said you could always tell the veterans from the newbies because by the time the veterans were there, the coffee was super strong and super sweet. And that's just how they took it. So I have my little coffee boiler here, and I have my mucket. Each man would have a mucket. Yes, sir? I have two questions. One, is you, you mentioned that the, the, the cattle were transported live. Typically. So does this mean that when they were slaughtered, they would always get salted, or did some of the troops get... No, they got fresh beef. Yeah. That, was the, that was the advantage of taking it live. So they would uh, take it to usually a depot, and if they needed to, move it out into the field, or they would slaughter it live, it slaughter it at a depot, and then, then salt it and send it out. So it wasn't too old when the soldiers got it. So that was a technique for, uh, for beef and then of course like I said to we'll explain salt beef and salt pork uh, how that would be done. The other question was what the, the metal utensils what, what exactly were they made up? Tin. Tin. With good healthy lead solder. <laughs> 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 On the confederate side Flour was very, very hard to come by. If you read anything in the Confederate journals, look at about 1864 in Richmond and read about the bread riots because they could not get food, they could not get flour. Flour was impossible to come by. The South does not grow wheat. Okay, if you want to grow wheat, you've got to come to states like Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. You know, This is a wheat belt. The South grew corn. Where they grew uh, agricultural commodity, it was mostly, of course, cotton. But their primary foodstuff was corn. So, if you go down through the breadbasket of the Confederacy, which was western part of Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley, that was their breadbasket, and that grew a lot of corn. So corn was their primary starch. Yes, sir?
1: Is there any point in which you can harvest
0: cotton and and make it and eat it? No. (laughs) No way to harvest cotton and eat it. So those are the main supplies that are going to be issued. In addition to the daily ration, uh, soldiers would get dried corn. Now what you do with this is you break your teeth. (laughs) <laughs> remember the bacon? You throw that into the bacon grease and it kind of puffs up a little bit. It's not quite popcorn. It's parched corn. It a, it's a, uh, expands, the water in the corn expands. It's not a lot of water, a lot of moisture in there, but enough to crack it. And then it becomes edible. And that was one of the other things, especially with the southern soldier, they would get parched the parch. Okay. Rice was also issued where available. And they would also get beans. Uh, this, of course, is the great northern bean. There's a place that the soldiers love. The mess tent's the place that we mean And the meal that we want to see there Is the old-fashioned white army bean Tis the bean that we mean And we'll eat like we ne'er ate before The army bean, nice and clean And we'll stick to our beans evermore Now the bean in its primitive state Is a meal we have all often met, but when cooked in the old army style, it has charms that we ne'er can forget. Tis the bean that we mean, and we'll eat like we ne'er ate before. The army bean, nice and clean, we will stick to our beans evermore. That was a period song. I don't
1: like that anymore. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank God.
1: Uh, your corn reminded me of that jimmy crack corn, and I don't care.
0: That is what they're talking about.
1: Ah.
0: So, and that you pass a- this around? Yeah. If okay. you want to pass those around, please do. Now, i got to tell you, my hard tack is not really hard tack. Uh, I went with a recipe, Sorry. and... Uh, oh, no, Now, one of the other things they issued was molasses, especially in the South. They didn't have sugar, but they issued molasses. Now, the North, you know, when you look at the Northern industries, uh, what the North is able to do is import a lot of different items, okay? Sugar was a commodity from the West Indies. Corn, uh, coffee, Brazil was a big coffee producer back during the 1860s. So if you read in there, it'll talk about Brazilian red. That's a coffee, okay? So they will talk about different types and areas where to get coffee from. So those were different things that the North were able to import by blockading the South, of course. They prevented the South from getting those things. So coffee being the staple of an army, the South desperately tried to come up with some alternatives. Uh, Anybody here familiar with chicory coffee? Sure. Okay. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Okay. They tried roasting peanuts. If you roast a peanut, and grind it, and then try to boil it to come up with some kind of coffee. Um, Did all kinds of things of that nature to try to produce a coffee substitute. That uh, none of them quite came close, especially lacking, of course, caffeine. the caffeine element. And that is why the soldiers love coffee, because you know, you give you that little perk, get you back up on your feet, you know, get you through that, uh, you know, 12 hour guard mount, whatever you were doing. So it was essentials like that that allowed them to, uh, to get by. In addition to being rationed food, part of your rations would include other elements. Candles. Uh, a soldier would get about four candles a month. Which isn't bad because if you were messing with four other people, that would, you know, give you enough candles for for what you need to do. You know, writing a letter or whatever. They would also be issued soap. So, if you found a stream, make sure you got the water from upstream rather than downstream of where they were crossing. Because you know, they would bathe. You know, the idea that you know people back then only bathed once a, once a week—nah. Any time they could take advantage of a stream, they would wash up as best they could. Uh, especially their clothing, which tended to have all kinds of uh, critters after they've been on campaign for any length of time. So there might be a a group of like 50 soldiers, but they would be cooking in little groups of three or four? Yes. Typically you would break into a four-man mess. Might be one or two extras, you know, so three to four, like you said. Pretty inefficient. It is pretty inefficient. Okay, When we're dealing with an army on the move, the way it would work, you would have a division, and the division would have three to five regiments. Okay? They would alternate on the movement as to which regiment would be in the lead. So I'm the lead regiment. I march for a day. I go into bivouac. The second regiment passes us by and marches for a day. While we're in bivouac, we're given our rations. Usually, again, three days. So you get three days worth of fresh beef. The first thing you do is you cook it all. Because the last thing you want to do is carry around uncooked beef at 110 degrees, even if it was only going to be for two days. Okay? You would cook it. And there was a couple things that they would do. Hardtack. They would take this and they would smash it and pulverize it down as small as they could get it. Take some... Bacon grease and water, mix that together, and re- reforms into a kind of a dough. They would take that, take your beef. There was one other thing that they were issued that I did not have, because uh, there was really no good substitute for it desecrated vegetables. Oh. Or desecrated vegetables, as the soldiers called it. During the Civil War, they had a provisioner and they produced a vegetable mass what they would do is they would shred potatoes carrots, turnips, parsnips cabbage and they would shred that into a vat cook it and then they would take that and press it like you would press cheese to get the water out and dry it into a hard solidified block and they would issue that to the soldiers and you would break that off and throw that into boiling water and a vegetable bouillon but actually with all the veggie bits in there so they would break that off throw that in there It would be a thickening element and a stew at the same time so when they are boiling their beef and they tended to boil the army manual calls for everything to be boiled uh... turn it into a soup cause you never know what kind of Quality of beef you're getting in terms of toughness, and, and you know these cows have been marching up and down with the army, so they're pretty buff. <laughs> you're not dealing with nice marbleized fat; you're dealing with the stringy parts of the cow. If you get a hold of sheep, it's mutton, not lamb. So boil it; uh, breaks it up, tenderizes it. They thought that was much healthier for the body and of course the boiling captures the fat and it's all additional calories in there. Throw in your desecrated vegetables and make a glop. Then you have your glop out of your hardtack that was crushed and remodified. Throw that in there, fold it over, and then fry it and you have a meat pie. And then you could take that meat pie and put that in your haversack and that then little bit better to carry than slimy old beef. This is a haversack. This is your food basket. This is what each soldier was issued. This is a Confederate. The Federals were tarred, so they were waterproof, theoretically. Uh, After a couple of campaigns, they would reissue them. This thing was probably the most common thing issued because they got gross quick. (laughs) <laughs> so you would do something like make a meat pie and put it in there so you'd have something, and you could eat that on the march. You could eat it cold. You could stop somewhere, boil coffee, heat that up by the fire, and have a hot meal, okay? Because as you're moving, okay, I've gone in the bivouac. The rest of the battalion has come in. Now my battalion, my regiment is at the back of the division, as the division goes forward and each regiment in their turn drops out, bivouacs, and then we keep moving forward depending on how far and where we're expected to march to. This way you could keep the supply wagons to the rear and keep things in supply and then still have your your division moving. The difficulty there, again, the transportation is you need to depend on wagons as opposed to, you know, the riverboat, as opposed to the railroad stations. You establish a depot and then you branch out from that depot. Questions? No? Good. What about care packages? Care packages are an important part of the process, but Postal Service in 1860... Is not stellar, so depending on what you got, if you got canned goods from home, great. Uh, if they tried sending something like uh, like bread, it would you'd probably arrive looking like a chia pet. <laughs> so,
1: but it did catch up with you.
0: It did eventually catch up with you. Most of the mail service was letters, uh, care pat, but they did have care packages. Um, most of the care packages really didn't come from mom and dad. Uh, what they would do is groups like the Christian Sanitary Commission would provide and move with the Army, have their own supply functionality, to be able to provide the soldiers little bits of, of home, like you know some cookies or cakes or something like that, that they could provide to the soldiers while they are on the march. So those were a real source of care packages, again, especially for the Union Army. Uh, additionally, one of the other great sources of foodstuffs was the ability of the Army to forage, Okay, which is a nice word for pillage. Now, depending on where you are, depending on what time of year it is, depends on what you're going to get. Uh, most of the time, what you're going to do is if you find the farm you want to hit their root cellar. So things that have kind of fallen out of popularity for some unknown reason are wonderful things like turnips, parsnips, and rutabagas. Now you people, being that you're into historical cooking, probably love these things. and doing reenacting, I sure have. I don't understand why people aren't just, you know, these things are incredible. (laughs) They're really tasty. uh, And healthy for you. So, these would be the type of thing they would find in a root cellar, along with things like potatoes and onions. So, anywhere they could forage, they would get that. In the song of uh, marching through Georgia since you mentioned marching through Georgia Sherman's march through the sea to talk about how the sweet potatoes sprouted from the ground so uh, that was one of the things that uh, it was an African import was sweet potatoes that came over to the country so that was a other item that they would uh, they would scrounge for any kind of uh, chickens they always said that when an army moved through an area, the army was like a horde of locusts. Okay, You have a community, let's take Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a community of about 7,000 people at the time of the Civil War. Still is about that size. 7,000 people. You had two armies come through there, numbering in total about 210,000 people about 85,000 Confederates, about 120,000 Yankees. So all of these people converged onto Gettysburg. How did most people have water back then?
1: Well, I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, Your well's dry. They would drink the well dry. Uh, Any loose farm animals were fair game. General Schemmelfenning, after the first day's disaster at Gettysburg, hid in the pigsty. And I'm thinking, that's not a really good place to hide because their soldiers are going to come looking for those pigs. (laughs) They may not be looking for you, and they might accidentally find you. Uh, And so that would be one of the things they would do. Another source of food supply for the soldier were called sutlers. Settlers were moving retail shops, and one of the most popular things was canned peaches. Anybody ever have Van Camp's pork and beans?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know how old that stuff is? I mean, not the can that you just <laughs> bought, but you know. that had that has been around since before the Civil War. And interestingly enough, it was the United Presbyterian Church that actually owned the canning facility that made Van Camp's pork and beans once upon a time. Little trivia. So the settlers would have canned goods and one of the favorites, of course, was brandied peaches. The settlers were allowed to sell and carry liquor for the officers only. Soldiers, enlisted men were not allowed to buy liquor but they would have brandied peaches and sometimes there was even a peach in the jar. (laughs) 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 the settlers were notorious because of their pricing Um, I'm not sure that it was that notorious as it was just the difficulty of getting stuff and having it available because they're not, I mean they have to rent space from the army to get their supplies to them that they can turn around and sell to the army. Strange operation, the whole process of the sutlers. But the one thing it did do is it did provide some variety. And variety was essential to the soldiers And figuring out how to take what they were rationed and turn it into something edible. Uh, for example, in hardtack and coffee, Billings talks about taking the coffee, they would break the hardtack into the coffee and the weevils that were in the hardtack would float to the surface and they could skim them off and as Billings says, without imparting too bad a flavor to the, to the coffee. Uh, at the same time, you know, they would mush the, uh, uh, what would be a brick-hard piece of bread now becomes akin to gutta persia, and so you can at least chew on it. Where did the term subtler come from? Good question, and I don't have an answer. Uh, anytime you put it in spell check, it comes up as an error. <laughs> so it was a term Is unique...
1: S-U-T-T-L-E-R?
0: Yep. It's a term unique to civil war. I've not seen that in any other period where they're referred to as settlers. What's the word? What's the word? Suttler. Suttler.
1: So instead of settler with an E, it's Suttler with the U.
0: Okay. And they were actually uh, they would have a contract usually with the regiment or a division and then they would be supplying those people, uh, selling to those people different items from home, uh, kind of as a mobile PX.
1: So how much would they pay for the can of peaches?
0: A can of peaches then was about 10 cents. They would sell for about a dollar. And what was their income? What's that? What was their income? What, the sutlers? No, the... um, Oh, the soldiers? The the, 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 the customer. The customer, okay. (laughs) These would sell for about a dollar to a person who's making $14 a month. Oh,
1: dear.
0: Okay. So that's a luxury item, as you can well imagine. Uh, The the federal pay scale was a soldier. got uh, Well, originally $11 a month. They boosted up to $14 a month. Uh, Musicians, so you have the regiment, that little kid there that's the drummer boy, he's getting $18 a month.
1: Oh my
0: gracious! Because he has a talent that's important, <laughs> as is the bugler. Uh, the corporal's getting uh, twenty-eight dollar, 20, dollars a month. The sergeant thirty-five. So the the pay scale <laughs> rockets up. Yeah. Uh, and then also your ration issues. Uh, when you go in there, you look at their their ration books, I mean it covers everything. Two pairs of pants during the course of a year, one jacket, one overcoat, you know. How many pairs of socks they would be issued. Talk about care packages, now that's where the care packages came in. Socks, things of that nature, shirts, those are the things that really made up the care packages rather than food items. So those were because they could catch up, and even on the on the Eastern uh, campaign, they would talk about you know about March or April, they would bundle up all of their uh, great coats and send them back home, so they wouldn't have to carry them oh. and then they would send sense. them back in oh. September October. Hmm.
1: that makes sense yeah. do you want to talk about some of those vignettes? <sighs>
0: Yeah, we could do that.
1: If you, I mean, I'm just suggesting because the people who have never come don't have that experience.
0: Well, I'm going to start with a- accolades in California because one of the favorites. Again, the whole point of this is to tie the food to the what's going on. So, yes, sir. Well, just uh, one more question before we move on to another thing. Uh, have you ever? Uh, Come across any accounts of uh, food shortage on the home front? Um, It it doesn't seem on on uh, the on the Confederate side uh, heavily. On on the Confederate side, but not the Union. Not on the Union side. Um, Even in New Orleans, they had some food shortages during the early part of the blockade. The Union Army comes in, and the food becomes pretty common, pretty regular uh, to be able to get a hold of stuff because they're now importing because they're back in Union territory. So, most of the areas didn't have, uh, you didn't have rationing like in World War II. Okay, during World War II, you had the ration tickets, you had your ration books, you had your ration for gasoline, you had, everything was rationed. In the Civil War, they never even considered that. for the northern states, the ability to produce excess, uh, um, they were probably still exporting wheat to Europe because they could. So I've never read anywhere of uh, food shortages, but like I said, if you read about Richmond in 1864, the, food, the bread riots, uh, the lack of, uh, the inability, I mean, a, a pound of, pot of uh, flour would be probably about four to five thousand dollars confederate
1: didn't the southerners also have the problem of people going home to help their families
0: desertion was a problem uh... for the south it was also a problem for for the north but more so for the southern states because uh... again dependent upon uh... small farms and and tiny little acreages uh... and a lot of the people just you know You get your enthusiasm up, and this is, oh, going to be so much great fun, and it's not. (laughs) So uh, after a couple of months, people would uh, fade away. Lose their enthusiasm for it. But it was a... uh, Yeah, desertion was always a problem for both armies. But the... uh, the South definitely, depending on where you were, uh, the, the cities especially suffered. The, you know Farms tend to be able to take care of themselves. They're usually self-sufficient. But the cities require that excess to go in there. And the South also, with the blockade, was not able to bring in things like coffee, sugar. Uh, during the war, the soldiers would often trade, the Southerners trading tobacco for, for coffee and sugar. Or they could fraternize across the lines. So one of the things she asked about was some of the vignettes, and this is going back to the camp tours. So we go from camp to camp, talking to the camp people, and seeing what they're cooking. Okay? One of the aspects of this is quality is not essential. It's not about quality. It's about where are you at, what's going on, where did you get your food, and how are you preparing it. So these are the elements we're looking for, an understanding of your situation and how food relates to it. Going back to accolades, when we first did this, we first did the cooking tour the first year. The second year, everybody was prepared for it. Well, one of the units, the 19th Indiana, had a huge pig roast. The other unit had this Mexican feast. Okay, I'm confused. (laughs) So, I go up to Gary Fredella, who was commanding the 19th Indiana. Tell me about what's going on. Well, my men found this pig, so we slaughtered it and set up a... You know, he has all the whole elaborate ironworks for doing a pig roast. (laughs) Okay. I'm not buying that story. I go over to Al Hahn's group, and they're doing this. They've got this
1: Hispanic one. Were
0: they supposed to be Southern? No, both of these units are federal. The 19th Indiana is a federal Uh, unit. The uh, 6th U.S. Company G. So I go over to Al Hahn's group and there's this Hispanic lady flattening tortillas and cooking them on a rock, peeling the tomatoes roasting the tomatoes and peeling them for salsa and doing all of this stuff over a campfire very period, very correct. Al, what's going on here? Oh, we're the 6th U.S. Company G. Okay, says we're in San Diego at the Embarcadero preparing to embark to sail east for the Civil War. One of my sergeants is married to a senorita, and for the company, she's making a going away feast. I'm like, damn, that works. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's locally grown produce, you know, California beef, everything, you know. He took first. Gary didn't even place, because he lost to a Michigan engin- engineer that was cooking beef and barley soup on a fire, reading out of a field manual how to make it. <laughs> he took second. Patton's mess, even without coffee, took third. <laughs> <So.
1: sighs> That's what's so fascinating. That's why it's worth going to every year. It's like...
0: You know, one of our traditional winners used to be the Austin's uh, Sharpshooters. That's a Confederate unit. Culinary skills—how uh, to put this politely—they didn't have any. Um, <laughs> what they would do is they'd fry bacon, and then they would make what's called a, a what would be called a, a Johnny cake or a hoe cake. I had a dream the other night when everything was still. I thought I saw Susanna running down a hill. A hoe cake was in her mouth, a tear was in her eye. Oh, said old Susanna, "Susanna, don't you cry." <laughs> uh, a hoe cake is nothing more than uh, cornmeal and water. Now, if you're competent, you use boiling water. Cornmeal and boiling water is what? Grits. Grits. Gr-
1: or, or polenta.
0: Polenta. Exactly. So what you're doing is taking it making it into a polenta and then frying it in bacon grease. And that would be a... That's a hoe cake. So when you see that term, now you know what it actually is. is just fried polenta. Uh Now, if you don't make it with boiling water, you make it with cold water, what you've got is sand. (laughs) And as much as I tried to get Bill Maulberg to boil the water before making his hoe cakes, he would just, you know, you just take a bite into it, and it's like eating a piece of sand. It's just, you know. And they were a traditional winner because... Um, the way they would camp, the way they would set up, what they had, was very consistent with what they were presenting, which was an arm, which was a unit on picket. out, um, you know, totally dependent on just the supplies that they had, which is you know, good old-fashioned bacon, cornmeal, and if they could pillage an onion or, or some vegetable, that would be what they would be eating. Other units portraying something, Uh, One of my favorite stories, we had a group that was doing the 10th Veteran Reserve U.S. Now, the 10th Veteran Reserve, they were portraying a unit that was stationed in a little town called Chicago, because they were guarding Camp Douglas, which was the Confederate prisoner, prison camp, and they're set up, and we go in, and what are they making? They're making split pea soup, which makes perfect sense. Dried peas, common common, commercial element. And then I made the mistake of asking, I said, so I suppose you've got some nice ham hocks to throw in there for flavor. And they replied, where are we going to get ham hocks? <laughs> and as I'm walking away, one of the women next to us, next to me, who had been on the tour goes and says, Chicago, mm-hmm. the city that works, hog butcher to the world. <laughs> Needless to say they didn't do that well. <laughs> so those are some of the ideas and the vignettes that the soldiers would do. And, and uh, we had a group that did uh, Ian Baker and does a basically a hell on wheels. If you know the term, mm-hmm. it actually comes from the railroad days, okay? So as the railroad went, they would have, somebody would rent the space, move out there, and set up basically a cantina to take the money off of the railroad workers and set up gambling house, alcohol, prostitution. Oh, um, I was wondering if that was coming up. <laughs> so that would be, uh, and they called them hell on wheels because it would move down the road railroad Whenever they would get to a stopping point, so that, like I said, basically to take the money off the railroad workers. Did they ever run out of fuel from for cooking ovens? Uh, y- not really, because number one, it is woods. They're you know all they're doing is using wood <laughs> as their primary fuel. Uh, now. Fence posts became real scarce after an army went through. You're not going to have a lot of those because they're dry so they chop up easy and they burn easy. So I mean, chopping down you know, trees and trying to burn, burn them, them. is yeah. Uh, you would usually scrounge through for the dead dead fall, dead fall and whatnot. Buildings? Yeah you do that, too. You know, see, that barn looks like it's been up too long. I'll just tear that down. You know, rip a few shingles off of that, and rip a few more shingles off of it. And the Amish can put them up in a day. The Army can take them down a lot quicker. So, yeah, fuel would be an issue. I mean, like I said, when an Army went through an area, it was like a horde of locusts. Uh, anything they could eat, anything they could steal anything they could drink, anything they could use for, for burning and building a fire. Now the army would actually go out and procure wood, so they would actually send people out to chop wood, so if they were in camp, they would actually do wood, wood details to go out and harvest lumber for their, uh, for their fireplaces.
1: I remember there was that one vignette. It was the, those, that guy from Iowa. I don't know his name. Dave Gordy? Yes. Yes. He's the one that at least twice had the rat.
0: Yeah. Which was actually squirrel. But that's, <laughs> it
1: doesn't matter. It was the thought that counts, you yeah. know. And the, there was that one... I mean, and he shows up with horses that also looked pretty darn lean. It was the group that was going through Texas, and they came upon a homestead that had already been visited multiple times. There was nothing left to pick out of that place, except they found the rat, or squirrel, scurrying into a hole, and they chased it down and roasted it. But I was very impressed that even the horses looked a little lean until I talked to my sister, and she goes, they're probably race horses. They have a high metabolism. It's hard to keep them happy you know, are well enough fed?
0: Uh, he does get... Uh, what he does is basically horse rescue. Okay. So what he does is, you know, because a horse... Uh, a racehorse has about a uh, four-year functional life expectancy. Yeah, if for they food. win, if they don't win, it's about 18 months. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if they win, then they're stud. And if they don't win, they're glue factory. So... That's what uh, he does is he picks up uh, horses like that because they're used to being ridden and uh, his people are all pretty uh, pretty lean themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they look mm-hmm. really good.
1: My daughters picked up a horses that way. You, you, you go down to the race when they don't want
0: them anymore, they're free. Yeah. Really?
1: Mm-hmm. Because they pass law, they can't make them block food anymore. So if they, they either give them away to the stem girl. They ship them to Canada where they can't make them Well, that's a cost, too. And what often that's why there's lots of problems because, well, what's the value of a horse? Nothing, because if you can't sell it, like you said, to the glue factory, you got a problem. If they don't win
0: within about 18 months, they're not going to really. Yeah. Any qu- other questions? Yeah, that, Dave Gordy's group is always, I mean, the one year they were there, they had a chicken. They... I mean, they literally had live chicken that became a dead chicken that became a chicken dinner all on the site.
1: But, but there was also that one, there's that red-haired lady. I don't know what her name is, but oh, she's yeah. quite the drama queen. Yes. And there there were two different vignettes I mean, over different years. This is why it's worth going, because it's like... It's, Things it, change. It, it changes dramatically. So this red-haired lady, one year, she was the indentured servant... Yes. And her brothers were fighting for the South, and her mistress was a northern sympathizer, and she was really angry to be where she was, helping... Yankees. Yankees. And that's where they had the chickens tied with string by the legs. They were sitting there, you know, picking up whatever. Yeah. That was quite good. Then there was another year, the same woman, but this was the one where they were the Irish ladies.
0: The Irish Brigade, yes. They were a group of uh, displaced people.
1: Yes, that there was somebody there who was a Civil War buff, and he knew all about them, and they yep. kind of disappeared. Right. They nobody knows what happened to them, but they had it where they had for the um, officers sort of this little restaurant. Was yep. it the blue whale or the gray whale?
0: The uh, green whale.
1: Okay. Well, you know.
0: <laughs> it was a whale. You
1: got. It was there. a whale, and they were making a turkey dinner for those that for those officers that could pay for it. Right those women were got the, the the carcass of that turkey, and I mean they were picking the meat off for dear life. Yeah. I mean, it was part of the vignette, but it was very effective
0: mm-hmm.
1: Very effective.
0: yeah there there are some groups that are really, really good at that uh, at doing uh, great interpretation. Um, it, it can be very impressive. like I said. The uh, Austins when they would do their camp. I mean, you, you walked out of there and you felt like you had stepped back in the time because you know there's no tennage They're sleeping on the ground. They look like they've been there for a while, and uh, uh, they really did a good job. Um, This always takes place in San Diego. No, this is up here in uh, Wakanda at the Lake Forest County Preserve.
1: In fact, if everything had gone to plan, we would be starting the tour right about now. Right.